Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. So the title for tonight's talk, uh, or session I should say, is Planet versus Profit, Striking a Balance. There's a lot of nuance already in that statement. The subtitle or the prompting question, if you read the uh, website promoting this event, was what is the role of Australia in sustaining our region's seas, skies and soil? I think both the main title and the prompt question provide some deliberately provocative challenges to us all. Um, on the one hand, what do we, dis what do we expect? of Australia, both the Australian government and I guess us as Australians, to play a role in the global challenge of sustainability? Do we expect our government and perhaps us in our own behaviour to punch above our weight, fighting hard to reduce the negative environmental implications of what is I think for the large proportion of Australians a globally uh, advantaged status in terms of social and economic well-being, and uh, to what extent should we define our actions and our strategies in terms of being globally responsible citizens? Or in shed, instead, should we take the advantage of luxuriating, perhaps, waiting until others, perhaps larger countries, such as the United States or China, take action first and sort of hop on the bandwagon afterwards? These are obviously very politically um, challenging and contentious questions which of course the Australian nation has been debating in some depth for at least the past decade with respect to emissions trading policy and more generally I guess in terms of sustainability and environment more broadly for much longer than that. And I think already I've sort of problematised this in terms of government action versus individual action or action by other entities. Um, in putting together the brief notes for tonight, I was reminded of um, the energy policy debate happening in South Australia over the last couple of years, when the then Premier of South Australia, Jay Wetherill, took the view that uh, he wanted to have his state be more, re more reliant on renewables than many other states. The federal government was not providing leadership and so uh, put down the challenge with Elon Musk to invest in the Tesla battery, which I think is obviously a very interesting innovation in the Australian energy policy space over the last couple of years. So at all kinds of levels, federal government level, state government levels, cities, regions, local government and us in our households um, and as individuals, we, we make these challenges and decisions on a daily basis in terms of how we might engage with challenges of sustainability and what is, the role, what is our role as citizens. And these debates, this, this session tonight, um, is, is adjacent to tomorrow's uh, ASEAN Forum being hosted by the Sydney Southeast Asian Centre. And, and these issues are not just academic for many of the close neighbours in the Southeast Asian region to Australia. Uh, just in the past week, uh, leaders of our government have said that they are confident that we will meet our Paris obligations, for example. Um, now, the response of many educated analysts in this, in terms of those statements, has been 
to put our hands in the air and say, well, how? Um, because the energy policy mix, the overall settings uh, in relevant policies are not consistent necessarily with meeting those Paris obligations. But of course, if Australia doesn't meet its Paris obligations, many of, and that is somewhat of a template for the way other countries respond as well, that will have immediate implications over an extended period for many of the more vulnerable people living in vulnerable ecosystems just to our north. And there are many dimensions of this, of course. Um, again, to take a recent example, the, um, there is a significant problem of drought in central Java at the moment, which is causing all kinds of hardship to smallholder farmers reliant on the monsoonal and seasonal rains for their crops. And meteorologists have pointed to links between the immediate weather cycles of Indonesia and the hot air that has prompted the drought in Australia. Ironically, I'm saying this on a welcoming night of rain here in Sydney, but we all know that the, the drought over recent months has been quite severe here, and it's part of a broader way in which Australia is connected to the region. Uh, we often think, when we think of globalisation, we think of economics, but I think the environment is perhaps the most globalised entity of it all. Um, the atmosphere, the waters around us don't know anything about national boundaries. And in Southeast Asia, particularly just a few years ago, I think any negligence over that assumption was brought into clear view with the great smoke haze that erupted over particularly Singapore and the Malayan Peninsula in 2015, emanating from forest fires in Kalimantan that were prompted both by smallholders wanting to uh, burn down the forest to eke out a livelihood, but also large entities wanting to um, clear land for oil palm plantations and the like. And the ensuing smoke haze uh, was estimated to have uh, caused the death of 100,000 people across the region. Those estimates are contested, but I think what's not in contest is the fact that the intensification of our relations with the environment um, has increased over recent years and the negative externalities of those actions are being felt more directly by more people in more diverse settings. So we'll be talking about our atmosphere, our skies, but also our soils and uh, our seas. We have experts to the left of me who will talk through many of those issues. And let me, before I conclude these brief remarks, give an introduction to the panellists to my left. On the far left, Professor Christopher Wright is a Professor of Organisational Studies here at the University of Sydney's Business School, where he teaches and researches organisational change, management innovation, sustainability and critical understandings of capitalism and political economy. His current research explores organisational and societal responses to climate change, with a particular focus on how managers and business organisations interpret and respond to the climate crisis. His research on climate change and business is internationally recognised and he has developed research collaborations with leading international climate scientists and global environmental organisations. To my immediate left here, Dr Kat Dory has been working on fisheries and seafood sustainability for 15 years now, primarily with Greenpeace and in the last year as an independent advisor. Kat has also given numerous guest lectures here at the University of Sydney over recent years. Kat works with non-government organisations, industry, governments 
and academics to provide analysis of current and emerging science and policy development for fisheries management, sustainable and equitable seafood sourcing practices and fish welfare. And finally, in the middle, Dr. Pishimon Yopantong is an Australian Research Council Fellow and Senior Lecturer in International Relations and Development at UNSW Canberra. She, she leads the Hass Environmental Justice and Human Rights Project and the Responsible Business Lab. Previously, Pishamon was an ASEAN Canada Senior Fellow at the RSIS Centre for Non-Traditional Security Studies and a Global Leaders Fellow at Princeton University and at the University of Oxford. She has conducted extensive fieldwork in China and Southeast Asia on the impacts of Chinese investment in Cambodia, Laos and Myanmar. Now the way we're going to run tonight is to primarily converse. What I'll do is ask each of the panellists here some questions to get us started. And then as we were somewhat joking before this session started, we don't really know how it's going to evolve over that. I think that's best, right? Rather than a series of set pieces, we'll try and converse with one another about the, the way in which we might think about these issues of sustainability and Australia's role in terms of the region's skies, soils and seas. Um, and we will certainly lead am leave ample time for questions towards the end. If I'm checking my phone, it's not because I'm being rude and, you know, looking at Facebook, I'm just keeping an eye on the time. So uh, please excuse me for that. So, what I'd like to do is perhaps start by asking each of the panellists in turn just to give a quick overview of and I'll start with Chris, perhaps, and then move on to Kat and then Pishamon. Um, how do you see the challenge of meeting the environmental sustainability demands of Australia and the region in the context of an overarching system, the capitalist system, which is fundamentally organised by the efficiency of businesses derived from profit maximisation? So, yeah, Chris. Yeah, Bill, thanks. Um, well, it, it's, it's the issue that's commonly framed as um, a grand challenge, I guess, by uh, political and economic masters or a wicked problem or a super wicked problem. Um, and I guess underlying that, though, I, I'm not entirely certain that those leaders um, are that serious about dealing with the issue of environmental sustainability, that uh, it strikes me that there is this uh, trade-off that they see uh, between... Uh, economic well-being and environmental well-being and that essentially um, the economics come first, the profit motive comes first at all costs. So um, my, my, my statement there I guess is based on having looked at climate change now, climate policy for about 10 years and one of the things that strikes me is it's a bit like Groundhog Day. You wake up each morning and uh, there's news coverage of the latest sort of commitments to climate action, whatever that might be. Uh, there's new and more frightening scientific projections of what's been happening to the globe around sea level rise or CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere or whatever it might be. And there's a lot of busyness um, in politics and economics, uh, activities around sustainability rankings and these sorts of things. We're very busy about doing stuff, but at the end of the day, as a global society, we haven't actually... Uh, been able to mitigate carbon emissions to any great extent. In fact, we seem to be accelerating our carbon emissions. Uh, so it's almost like we're ending up exactly where we were despite all of this busyness and action. We're, we're not actually making progress um, on the climate 
side. And for me, that that is the sort of, I think, the key issue underlying this tension between economics and the environment. And one of the best examples, I guess, you mentioned um, Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, if we look at how that reaction rolled out, late 2015, we have this agreement by 195 uh, nation states, a commitment to avoid greater than two degrees global warming, even some aspirational goals to try and come in under 1.5 degrees C, which now seem to be um, escaping us. And yet, despite the, the sort of the attention around that much typed document, there was an explicit rejection of any attempt at mandatory and, and compulsory emissions um, reductions or cuts. Um, and, and so UK climate scientist Kevin Anderson pointed out, in a sense, what's going on here is a form of magical thinking. Uh, that our political and corporate leaders are actually sort of saying here that economic growth is sacrosanct uh, and the laws of, of nature are negotiable. So physics, chemistry and biology, they're negotiable, but the laws of, of the profit motive cannot be, you know, uh, challenged. So, as you were saying, we have a global economic system, capitalism, which is essentially, as Naomi Klein sort of argued, at, at war with the continuation of a habitable climate um, on this planet. Uh, and there is this contradic fundamental contradiction between the economy and the environment, uh, which goes to the heart of, of the topic that we're, we're talking about tonight, you know, this balance between profits and the planet. Well, we can't very well balance uh, a habitable climate. That's not something we can sort of compromise and negotiate. That, that either exists or it doesn't. Uh, so, for me, the really interesting sort of question, I guess, in this is why is it that despite the, the scientific science on this area, the scientific projections of where we're heading to a four degrees C world, uh, we don't take action. Why is it, to, to paraphrase uh, the writer Elizabeth Colbert, as she sort of says, why is it that a technologically advanced society can choose, in essence, to destroy itself? And that's essentially what we're doing. We're in, in voting for business as usual, uh, in, in saying that the, the laws of nature are negotiable. We are, in essence, choosing to sort of destroy our, our, our society and, and much that we hold dear. And if you think I'm overreaching here, I think there was a really interesting example just in the last week. You might have seen it in the media. Uh, it got some traction on Twitter that uh, the Trump administration, uh, in one of its documents on uh, emissions uh, requirements around transportation, acknowledged that we are heading towards four degrees Celsius global warming this century. This is the Trump administration of the US. So they've pivoted essentially from outright climate denial, saying climate change isn't happening, it isn't a thing, to saying in the fine print in this document, well, actually, yeah, it is a thing, and four degrees is, is more than likely. And you would think, well, having admitted that, you would then want to take action to try and mitigate or prevent that. But rather, they use this as an excuse to say, well, therefore, we need to open up the re restrictions on fuel emissions. We need to just go crazy on that. So it's almost like it's sort of they're saying it's too late, uh, we're toast, uh, and the wealthy of the world plan to party um, all the way to the climate apocalypse. So there is this sort of bizarre thinking going on in policy debates around climate and economics, uh, which suggests that the people in power are quite okay with a future of climate catastrophe, so long as the short-term advantages of, of profit are available. Uh, so, the, this whole issue becomes quite complex and I guess when we talk about sustainability and sustainable development, I, I get somewhat uh, cynical about it because it strikes me sustainability becomes this sort of weasel word that we use where we, we talk a lot about sustainability, we have sustainable development goals, the SDGs, 
but we're not actually taking action as a global society to deliver on those things. Uh, and in essence, we're sort of saying, well, uh, a little bit of eco-efficiency here, a little bit of carbon markets there, and we're being sustainable. When in fact, what we're really doing is just being a little less unsustainable, uh, solving our guilt about the sort of trajectory we're on. So, um, you know, returning to your question, I guess, how do I see the challenge of meeting the goals of environmental sustainability with the profit motive? I don't, I'm, not, I'm not optimistic about the degree that we are going to actually meet the goals of environmental sustainability because as a, as a civilization, uh, as an, a global economy, we're moving in directly the wrong directions. Uh, we're ramping up new fossil fuel extraction, you know, gas fracking and tar sands and deep water oil drilling. We're cutting down the rainforest for the, the peatlands, uh, uh, for the palm oil, etc. Everything I see that's going on around the world and, and the economic doctrine that's driving that is directly opposite to what we should be doing to try and ensure a habitable environmental um, context for our species for this century. Well, that's a cheery opening, Chris, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything else, uh, knowing you for some years, but uh, we'll come back to some of those points a bit yeah. later on. Perhaps what we'll do is, Kat, would you, can I turn to you and ask, from your perspective, um, uh, I, I guess from your background working particularly in seafood and marine, but more broadly on environmental sustainability, how do you see the challenge of managing the environment? I would love to say that I'm going to be more optimistic than uh, our first speaker, but from a a fisheries and, and marine perspective, um, I would have to say I pretty much have come to the conclusion that it's impossible in, the, in our current system to have to be having um, environmental sustainability if we're going to keep focused on, on a capitalist and profit-driven society. Um, as long as we keep seeing ourselves as separate from the planet, as somehow separate from all these ecosystems that we rely on, and as long as we keep externalising the costs of mining resources, fishing resources, chopping down forests, and as long as profits are very much focused on short-term benefits, and quite often for big companies and shareholders who are very disconnected from where um, the money is being made from the local communities, then it's just not going to happen. Um, and in fisheries and aquaculture, we've seen that. I mean, most of you know that our fisheries are not doing very well globally. Um, overfishing is, is rife everywhere. 30% um, of our uh, managed fish stocks that we know uh, that we have good stock assessments for are overfished. There's a whole lot of fish stocks that we don't even have fish assessments for, which are likely um, considerably worse. Um, so we've basically been very focused on catch more fish or farm more fish as quickly as we, as quickly as we can. And this has had pretty horrendous impacts on both the ecosystem and people. So we've been taking too much fish, but we've also been taking a whole lot of other things that we didn't want to take and throwing them back overboard. Dolphins, sharks, other fish that we don't see as being commercially viable or, or interesting to ourselves. We've also taken food away from other critters. You know, if we're fishing herring and taking the maximum amount that we want, what about the seabirds? What about the marine mammals that rely on these species? Um, unselective fish, so yeah, unselective fishing gear, taking too much. Illegal fishing, because we've got this drive for profit and drive 
to take as much as we can. There's, there's just far too many boats out there. So people will break the rules in order to get more fish. And you have to stay out for longer, and you have to go further, and you have to pay your crew less, and you have to treat them badly and not feed them properly. So we have a whole issue around um, slavery at sea now becoming apparent. And it's not just happening in, in Asian fleets. We've seen it in... Uh, US fleets, we've seen it in Ireland, we've seen it in New Zealand. So people who work on these vessels are being mistreated because people are trying to cut the costs and make profits. And we've, I mean, there's also, as well as human rights abuse, there's the whole, I, there's the whole problem of, of fish welfare that nobody's even really talking about. Like trillions of fish die very horribly in fisheries and aquaculture practices. We have standards for, for farm animals. We have very little in the way of standards for how we kill fish to eat. And that's, you know, we should all start to think about that a lot more. It's definitely becoming a, a larger issue that we're not addressing. And this is all, you know, tied up with, it, tied up with the bigger issue of climate change. It's all going to get worse for a lot of fishermen and a lot of people relying on, on natural resources. I think I'll stop there because I'm sure we've got plenty more to. Well, the story, the, the meta narrative is only getting worse, Kat. I know, it just it gets frustrating. Pishmon, I won't challenge you to give a more upbeat narrative. I was just but I, but I, 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 I welcome and invite you to continue <laughs> to contribute to the discussion, please. Yes, no. I am. Um, all right. So a few years back, I had a conversation with a rear tento executive who told me that if indigenous communities wanted to develop, they needed to allow Rio Tinto to cut a path through the forest, essentially to clear the forest to make way for a much bigger road. That way they'll, get, they'll become connected to the modern world, as that person put it. And to me, that's a challenge. Um, in another conversation, I spoke to a Cambodian uh, government official who told me that deforestation can actually be good for the people, so he, he couldn't understand why is it that Western countries, Australia or Australian academics, um, are so frustrated about deforestation when in actual fact, when you clear forests, it means that people can actually make a livelihood for themselves. It means that they can you know, do farming and so on and so forth. And to me, that's also quite challenging and problematic. Um, and just before, earlier today, I was reading um, an update on the Adani mine and how an Australian federal MP was talking about how Greenpeace needs to essentially mine its own business um, and not send the rainbow or whatnot to, to, um, to, that, to that area. And to me, that's also troubling. Um, but in each of these cases, um, it's troubling not because of what these individuals say, but it's troubling because of what they represent. Um, and what they represent is the fact that we're still not speaking the same language. And by we, I mean environmentalists, people such as yourselves, business leaders, government leaders. We're still not speaking the language of sustainable, sustainability. And this comes back to the point that you were making earlier, that sustainable development in itself has become a buzzword. And it has become an empty signifier under certain circumstances as well. Um, and despite all of the international and regional efforts that we've seen being undertaken over the years to clarify in actual practice what sustainable development means, we're not really seeing development, unfortunately. And it's more of the kind of business of usual situation. Um, 
So to me, it's the mentality that's problematic. And I think the title of the panel today epitomizes that. It's planet versus profit, when in actual fact, I think we can also try and envisage ways in which it can be planet and profit. Um, and certainly, you know, when I engage with companies in Southeast Asia um, from a variety of countries, speaking to them, they say, well, you know, we want to engage with activists, we just don't know how to speak to them. And likewise, when I speak to activists, they say, we want to dialogue with, with businesses, but we have no idea how to speak with them either. So I think it's that challenge, again, of, of creating a common language, of defining environmental sustainability, but also realizing that the issue is, a lot of it is about climate change, but it's also not just about climate change. It's about the social and developmental challenges that come with environmental problems. It's also about resource extraction that's unsustainable. It's about fisheries as well. Um, and I think it's gaining that holistic perspective that most of us, um, including people in this room, I think that's a challenge that exists not only for business, government, or activist leaders, but it also is a challenge for all of us um, to realize and to try and, and kind of operationalize in the real world. So thanks, thanks, Pishmon. Uh, I'm just thinking about the three comp contributions you've, you've all made here, and it seems to me that everyone is talking about value systems in different ways. And I'm wondering if I could segue that into um, the next question I'd like to ask you, which is Australia's role in Southeast Asia. And I think, Pishamon, you, your last comments touched on this quite neatly, that um, there is certainly no one Australian view, there's no one Southeast Asian view. There are different actors in the region that have different uh, objectives and different perceptions on what we might call a good life and our role on the planet. I'm just, just wondering to what extent <coughs> we might think about Australia's role in Southeast Asia, the challenge of that, and perhaps think about it in terms of what values might be necessary to change or to promote in order to make meaningful progress. Kat, would you like to start thinking about your work in terms of fisheries particularly? Yeah, I mean, I guess what's very clear with respect to sort of fisheries is um, you know, Australia shares a lot of waters with our neighbours in Southeast Asia. We fish the same waters for tuna, both on the, the Indian Ocean side and the Pacific side. Um, and we also trade a lot of fish with Southeast, Southeast Asia. So. Australia actually imports about 67% of its fish, and a lot of that comes from Southeast Asia. Uh, if you're eating prawns, it's probably from Thailand or, or Vietnam. If you're eating tuna, it's probably been, well, it's probably been caught by multiple different people, but it's probably been um, canned in Thailand. So a huge amount of what, uh, what we're eating, and that's some of our top favourites are the, the tuna and prawns. Um, it's coming from these countries, so it's actually, it's, it's vital that Australia is working within this region to promote sustainable fisheries, sustainable aquaculture, sustainable, well, sustainable use of all our, our shared resources. Um, and I think there's a lot of ways that we can do that, and I think it, it requires both a carrot and stick approach. Um, a lot of these Southeast Asian countries need a lot of help to develop policies to develop management, but then also to implement these policies and management across. And it's, it's a complicated world because we have a lot of different 
um, countries with a lot of different people, a lot of different cultures, um, and it's going to take time. And we also we have a lot of knowledge and money in Australia, which others don't have. So I think it's about sharing knowledge and money, particularly um, finding ways that we can mentor scientists, mentor fisheries manage things like that. And we definitely, I know Australia is doing some of that work, particularly on, on the fisheries side. I've seen that in the world of, of tuna fisheries management. Um, but we also need to, to put that pressure on them to make sure that, that these countries understand that they have to show improvement and they have to show movement. Um, so some, some examples of where this has been working is the, the European Union has this system of um, yellow carding countries who are not managing their fisheries properly. Um, and so they get this kind of warning with a deadline of, and, and the, I guess it's a, a list of things that they need to achieve to address illegal fishing and to address labour standards that might be a particular problem in their country. And we've seen, um, we've seen huge, huge changes with that. I mean, I've watched Korea um, go from being one of the perpetual blocking countries within negotiations on, on tuna fisheries to being kind of fairly neutral and quite often on what I would consider the good side, you know, pushing for better data sharing, pushing for um, better fisheries management. So th these things have, have definitely driven change. We've seen Thailand um, as the first country to, to sign, and I can't remember which one, one of the, one of the new labour um, law agreements. Um, and they've been addressing definitely a lot better their illegal fishing addressing a lot better the, the slavery at sea issues that are going on. So this kind of stuff does work. Um, it's that kind of threat. I'm not always happy about the European Union's sometimes double standards, but that's a story for another time. So yeah, it's, it's about, and it's not just about governments either. I think it's, it's about getting people who are, in, who are buying fish from Southeast Asia should be involved in this. If you're a big supermarket and you buy all your prawns from Vietnam, you should be making very sure that you're buying from the more sustainable companies or making sure that you're helping to put fisheries improvement projects in place or aquaculture improvement projects, making sure that, 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 that there's money and knowledge going into helping these people develop better fishing methods, etc. Um, and obviously, you know, pressure from the public is, is always a big help. Um, and we, we've seen things, um, campaigns working through Greenpeace, for example, where we went after one of the biggest seafood companies in the world, Thai Union, which is um, also probably one of the biggest tuna suppliers, but they, they trade in a lot of different seafood. And by targeting them and making them kind of uh, raising the awareness in the public of, of problems that that were going on within the fisheries they source. There's a lot of labour rights issues. There were a lot of illegal fishing. They, are now, they now have a really good policy in place that they're working through implementing around addressing um, more sustainable fishing practices, addressing labour practices throughout their seafood chain. So this kind of stuff does work, but we just need a lot more of it from a lot, yeah, from pretty much every possible angle. Thanks, Kat. You touched on some, some really interesting issues there, the, the, the capacity for governance, for international governance, for international cooperation, the role of consumers and the role of business. 
push him on? Would you, how would you, I guess, um, define the challenges of shifting value systems, potentially in a more progressive way, with respect to Australia and Southeast Asia? Yeah. I think the first thing we have to bear in mind is the fact that Southeast Asian societies don't necessarily hold different values when it comes to the environment or to social development that are much that different from what you know, Australia sees as important um, or Australian society sees as important. Um, the problem, though, is the implementation aspect of it. Uh, you may very well have very good ideas, laudable values, but if you don't have a way or if you don't know how to implement those values in policy and actual practice, then therein lies the problem. And I think this is, it's the ca capacity gap, it's the implementation problem that we see widespread, as widespread in, in many countries in Southeast Asia. Um, so I would suppose that it's not so much that Southeast Asia would look to Australia as a kind of a, a value exemplar in that sense, um, but more as a, a very important source of, of technical and technological know-how. Um, and certainly looking at how Australian companies, through best practices, through corporate social responsibility initiatives, um, ha have influenced the CSER, social um, and environmental responsibility initiatives of Japanese or South Korean firms, for instance, that's actually very promising. At the same time, I'm aware that DFAT has an established presence in Southeast Asia as well, through programs like improving water governance, for instance. Um, so it's, it's already happening. But I think what I'd like to, and again, I apologize that I'm going to make this slightly um, pessimistic, sounds slightly pessimistic again, is the fact that what Australia should, in my opinion, be aiming to do is to try and mitigate or minimize its environmental footprint in the region. Um, and this is in light of the fact that we are seeing an expansion of, China, uh, of Australian investment projects across Southeast Asia, and already in countries like Indonesia and the Philippines, we're seeing how you know, these projects are not received well in the host countries, and that they have, in actual fact, resulted in very dire environmental and social repercussions. Um, so I think it's not just about the, the kind of the knowledge transfer, but also about Australia um, kind of controlling or managing its own impact in the region. Okay. Chris, do you see any light on the hill? <laughs> uh, I'm trying to be more positive. <laughs> Australia and values. Uh, so I look at it through the lens of energy and climate, and that immediately frames it, I guess, towards a possibly not so positive mm -hmm. view. Uh, I mean, Australia is the largest exporter of coal in the world. It's the second largest exporter of thermal coal in the world. Uh, I have a sort of a vision of Australia of a bygone year, maybe rose-tinted glasses, where we used to actually be leaders globally in a whole range of issues around human and environmental rights. And it strikes me over the last 20 or 30 years, we've sort of lost a large chunk of that. Uh, I don't want to sort of besmirch the brand too much, but we are, in a sense, like many of the other major nations in the world, a fossil fuel state. We pimp mm. coal to the world, much like Canada pimps tar sands oil. Mm. Uh, I don't see much evidence that we're trying to uh, promote a low-carbon future for developing countries. In fact, our current government seems to be quite keen on promoting the idea that so-called clean coal is the way to go and we should be exporting coal to India and anywhere else that'll take it, despite the economics of, of that not really stacking up if we look at what's happening with export thermal coal, it's, it's in structural decline. So it strikes me that 
Australia's uh, energy policy and even its foreign policy seems to be driven by a sort of a, a message that we should be trying to uh, promote this sort of fossil fuels forever fantasy. Uh, and it's clear that's not going to happen. Well, we can try and make it happen, but uh, we, can't, we can't be using fossil fuels forever and it will have dire consequences. And unfortunately, the dire consequences will be borne firstly uh, by the countries that are most vulnerable in a, in a developing economic sense or in a geographic sense, the equatorial parts of the world, the Pacific Islands, Bangladesh, low-lying areas of the world, um, cities on river deltas. Uh, these are the countries and, and parts of the world that are going to be hit hardest and earliest by the climate catastrophe that we're now producing. And to be honest, Australia is at front and centre of producing a lot of that problem by our promotion of a fossil fuel like coal, which is a very dirty energy source. Sorry, I can't be more positive. <laughs> so, I'm going <laughs> to... Um, notwithstanding the sort of few claps we got there, I'm going to be a little bit of a devil's advocate and try and challenge some of these views as my right as chairperson, I guess. Um, bec because we've seen quite astonishing reductions in the price of renewables uh, per kilowatt yep. uh, over the last few years that have uh, quite stunned most gen energy analysts. Uh, now, I've got a fair bit of my super tied up in solar companies these days and people are voting with their wallets to some extent along these ways. Um, I think Kat talked very appropriately about uh, the role of corporate social responsibility and the role of supermarkets. Of course, these companies will only be guided when we as individuals force market changes upon them. If we don't have demand for sustainability products, there's no logic for these companies to act sustainably. And I think to some extent, we, we have seen a broader social debate about sustainability and consumerism in recent years. I think um, I'm old enough to remember when to be a vegetarian was to be, uh, people would throw their hands in the air and say, what, what the hell is vegetarianism in Australia? And, um, and now it's, I won't say it's totally mainstream, but it's, it's mainstream enough for people to accept every restaurant or cafe you go to pretty much has a vegetarian option. So people are, there are changed value systems right across our society and there are technological shifts, particularly around renewables, that offer some glimmer of hope. Perhaps not to avert a four degree world, but um, to reforce the way in which energy is going to be produced um, in future decades. So um, notwithstanding the, the, the rational pessimism of the, the panel here, um, can we see technology or shifts in individual value systems as provoking something unexpectedly good? I'd welcome any responses to that. Okay, well, I'll lead off. Um, well, look, the whole renewable reinvention thing is, is, is a step in the right direction. There's no doubt about that. And if we could get uh, large-scale take-up at almost sort of industrial scale of solar and wind energy... Uh, that would be a great thing and would help turn down the curb on our current escalating carbon emissions, no doubt about that. The, the problem is that when you look at the data and you look at where the bulk of the world's energy comes from, it's still 80% fossil fuel driven. And then the other dynamic here I think is really important to grasp is that the climate crisis is a, is a systemic problem and green consumption isn't going to be sufficient to push back against that. We actually need leadership from governments to drive regulatory change that will, for instance, prohibit the use of certain fossil fuels in certain contexts. 
that argument that, that NGOs like 350 and Greenpeace put forward that uh, the vast bulk, 80, 90% of fossil fuel reserves have to stay in the ground is based on some pretty hard science around the carbon budget. Uh, so that can only really come through diktat via government policy and wouldn't really matter how many consumers were going to their supermarkets and saying no to the plastic bag or uh, I, I choose to offset my carbon flights. We need that sort of leadership from government. As far as I'm concerned, that's where we need the leadership coming. And unfortunately, because of the corporate political activities of, of the big fossil fuel companies, the Exxon Nobles and the Coke Industries, they have captured the power of the political apparatus. And we see that with the Trump regime in the US. That's the clearest example um, of what happens once these companies are able to pull the levers of political decision-making. And we've, we've missed, by 20 or 30 years, the sort of the, the window that we had to really intervene in a, in a large-scale systemic way to really wind down carbon emissions. So uh, it's not... I'm not as... I'm not as optimistic as I probably hope I would be. Uh, I think there will be change in energy systems of a quite dramatic kind. Uh, my feeling is it'll be too, too, too little too late to avert climate catastrophe, but it will hopefully turn down the curve a little bit on where we're heading, which is, is pretty calamitous. So, Pishamon, I'm going to ask you about the Southeast Asian experience in particular. When we talk about state capture by uh, pro-development interests, in Southeast Asia, where there's certainly ample examples of that, but there's also counter-examples of grassroots democratisation going on in Southeast Asia. In, in Indonesia, notably, recent transformations in Myanmar after the military regime, um, ongoing back-and-forth democratisation in Thailand, um, recent shifts in the regime in Malaysia. Um, do you see the countries of Southeast Asia just being captured by those potentially sort of injurious environmental interests or do you see some prospect for people-led grassroots change to that narrative? I think it's, it's a big question, mm. um, of course. If I may very quickly though, um, just to hark back because it relates to the issue of state capture in Southeast Asia. Um, you mentioned renewables, and of course we all know that renewables are uh, preferable to fossil fuels. But I have to say, and I mean, aside from wind and solar, what you see in a lot of Asia now is this boom in hydro, right? And hydropower in particular, and that's touted as you know extremely desirable. It's cleaner, it's better, blah blah blah. Um, but of course, if you work on the ground and if you look at these large hydropower projects, it's really evident that it's, it's not only is it environmentally unsound, given methane emissions and all that, but it's also socially unsustainable as well. And the problem there is, is to come back to that point mm. of state capture, is that it's how environmental sustainability gets spun into the broader development discourse in these countries. And I don't think it's unique to Southeast Asia. You're seeing it in Australia, you see it now um, in the US under Trump, but also before Trump. Um, and it's how development or environmental sustainability gets manipulated so that it suits these fairly narrow interests um, that certain gov governments have. Um, and to me, that's, that's the biggest issue, because for Southeast Asian countries, or recently I was talking to a delegation from China, they were asking me, 
you know, Australia has such a beautiful environment. You have clean skies, you don't have any pollution, or so it seems. Um, but what is the government must be doing so well to, to preserve this pristine environment? Um, how, do, how are they doing it? And, and I couldn't answer them. I should have directed them to you. But mm. they could have gone back with such a rosy <laughs> image of Australian <laughs> policy. Um, but I think it's, it's a common challenge, isn't it, in terms of, of maneuvering between these varying interests. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, I think we all, we, each of us are complicit in state capture. I mean, and you mentioned how local activists, um, resistance move movements are taking root in parts of Southeast Asia. That is definitely true. And, I, and you know, I think that's a cause for optimism as well, because these are people who are resisting state capture. Um, they are refusing the status quo. Um, and of course, it comes at a huge price for their own personal security. Um, but it also means that in so doing, they're, they're trying to preserve the security of future generations. Um, so I think it's, you know, again, um, the question of state capture is an issue in Southeast Asia. We are seeing drivers of change. Um, but again, I don't think it's unique to the region. And I think in one sense, it also harks back to some of the domestic politics that um, were mentioned earlier in terms of the, the coal and fossil fuel debates here. Cat. Mm. So I can have some optimistic stuff now. So there are optimistic things going on in fisheries because I feel like it's all gone a little bit sad. So I think technology definitely is improving a lot of fisheries management now. So one of the issues is that when you've got ships out at sea, quite often the only person who has contact with land is the captain. So if you're crew on the ship, you have no way to contact anyone on land if you're being mistreated. So Thai Union has agreed to put technology on, to, on board some of the, the fishing fleets that they work with that gives these um, fishermen a way to speak to at least their families at home. It doesn't mean that they can be on Facebook with all their friends or anything like that, but they, they do at least have a way to contact their, their wives and families at home. So that, that means that there's less likelihood of, of them being abused because they've got a way to report. It also just makes life more pleasant for them. We've also got um, programs like Global Fish Watch where we've now got a huge amount of satellite data, real time, showing where uh, different uh, vessels are at sea. Now, it doesn't always work for fishing vessels because they don't necessarily have to have this um, automatic information system, but a lot, of a lot of fishing vessels do. We've also, and this particular group is now also looking at um, satellite imagery at night. So you can see fishing vessels because they've got their lights on, usually. Um, and I've known some go dark when they're hiding. But so now they can see who's fishing at night and where they are. And you can tell by the way the lights move and who they're associating with what, what these guys are up to. And that is really starting to address one of the biggest problems with fisheries is that it's very much out of sight, out of mind. Very hard to control a bunch of fishing vessels that are 200 nautical miles plus out at sea. And if you've ever been on a boat out at sea, it's amazing how quickly you get out there and there's just nothing. <laughs> um, so things like that aren't making a difference. And things like technology that you can get, the drone technology. Drones, I have a friend who's making drones, just as a, as a side issue, that he, side thing he does, that he can now get to fly right out to the 200 nautical miles zone, which is the edge of, of national waters, which is quite often where 
people are misbehaving. They kind of come up close to your boundaries and, and take fish. And so you can get drones to fly out there, take film footage and, and send live footage back. So there's just a lot of ways that we can start monitoring what's going on out there. I'm just I'm thinking we need to give the fish some of this technology. They'd, they'd yes. get out of the way. You see, I mean, the, the bad part about the technology is that, unfortunately, we've got amazing technology on ship, on, yeah. on vessels, that they can find the fish mm. far too easily. Mm. It's, it's, you know, increasing efficiency of a fishing vessel is not great when the rest of the management's terrible because the fish have just got nowhere to hide anymore. Mm. I mean, there's, there's one particular... Um, type of fishing in tuna um, where they use purse seine nets, which are these big curtains of net that they put around a school of fish. But one of the things they do is have these fish aggregating devices that attract the tuna. And these devices are now so high tech that you can be sitting on land directing your purse seine vessels from Spain. You can be sitting in Spain saying, okay, that fish aggregating device over there has got about... 10 tonnes of tuna under it. Don't bother going to the one over there. That's got not much there at the moment. And so the vessels, instead of spending quite a lot of time at sea looking for the fish, are now just able to just go straight to the fish. And so that's, you know, catching a heck of a lot more... Well, catching what's left, I think, is more of the point. So, yeah, and so the technology can go both ways. But I, I think I've got a little more optimism on the, the other way <laughs> at the that's moment. Good. I've been trying to manage as my role in chair this sort of link between pessimism and optimism on the panel. I think the pessimists are on the, have got the sort of runs on the board at the moment, but I think it's certainly um, the, the point of tonight to sort of think about how we might envisage a future and uh, how we might balance this uh, profit versus planet motive and who would, who would win, if that's the appropriate terminology. What I'd like to do now is turn it over to you. We've got three experts here on stage. Um, I'd like what I'll what I'll try and do just to manage this a bit is to we'll go back and forth between two sides of the room. We'll start here, and then I'll get a question from this side, and vice versa. Um, Natalie, do we have microphones? We've got mo roving roving mics, so we can distribute those around. Um, feel free to ask any of the panelists a question that, uh, to draw on something they've said already or perhaps to take them into new directions. Uh, I will ask that you introduce yourself and where you're from and of course as it goes in these sessions, please make it a question, don't make it a statement. Thank you very much. Um, perhaps I saw someone up the front here first. Yeah, yes sir. Project which holds the seeds, world seeds. The, the mountain, the permafrost is melting, it's not freezing, and I think that is a great example of what mm. the issue is about. Um, I was thinking about how it's about the planet versus the profit, profits. I was thinking maybe instead of having a burst of profits, how about like money being used to drive environmental growth instead of um, capital growth? And if you have any thoughts on that and whether that Mm. Okay, good question. Any yeah. takers here? Chris? 
So I think the issue essentially is how can we separate our economic system? Uh, how, can we, how can we separate our economic system from the material impacts that it has on the environment, on the ecosystems, and the oceans, the atmosphere? And the problem has been we've had two centuries of industrialization based upon assumptions of compound economic growth ad infinitum, 3 to 4% GDP every year, that'll keep continuing forever and ever and ever, uh, and fossil fuel-based energy to achieve that. And that goes right back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So our entire global economic system is predicated on those two things. And we're trying to unpick that because those two things really drive the impacts that they have, the, the negative impacts we're having on the environment around resource depletion or carbon emissions in the atmosphere. Uh, and so there's a lot of debate about the idea of can we decouple economic growth from material impacts? Uh, and technically, it probably is possible if we could have massive embrace of renewable energy, which wasn't, you know, having mm. significant impacts like big hydro dams on, on local villages and, and rivers and things, and it was uh, solar and wind generated possibly, uh, that could possibly work. But the problem is, it strikes me, a lot of the innovation that we see today, we're throwing all our creative capacities at the wrong sorts of innovations, you know. A colleague and I wrote a book about climate change and the, the subtitle was Processes of Creative Self-Destruction because it struck us all the innovation was going at fracking shale gas or tar sands processing or mountaintop removal for coal mines or drilling for oil even further out beyond the continental shelf. So massive innovative capacity being thrown at finding even harder to get at unconventional fossil fuels when in fact we should be throwing a lot of innovation at the sort of the Tesla power batteries and the innovation. Uh, so yeah, I think it is technically possible to decouple, but unfortunately we are locked in, there's an inertia in the system, we're locked into this fossil fuels forever thing. And we have a political apparatus, as I was saying, it seems to be, if we look at Australia's example, doing exactly that, you know, oh, we're gonna reach our Paris emissions in a canter, um, you know, clean coal, this is where we wanna be going, Co more coal-fired power stations. It's, it's bizarre thinking, and we need to sort of decouple the political debate also from that sort of thinking. Thanks. Anyone else wish to contribute? Shimon? I'll add a little bit. Um, I'm thinking in terms of, you know, again, private enterprises, private investment. Um, and you mentioned permafrost and the big issues, but this is where I think I still believe in the adage that we need to think globally but act locally. Because a lot of the environmental problems that we see are manifesting themselves at the local level. If you talk to communities, they don't really know about the permafrost melting. What they know about is their rivers being contaminated by cyanide because a business upstream is, is engaged in illegal mining practices, for instance. Um, and I agree with you. I think that it is possible to actually make profit work for the planet. Um, and this is based on my own experiences, but also based on you know, studies that I've read over time where there is a growing cognizance amongst you know, the business community that bad environmental practices can actually result in very dire um, material costs to the firms, right? You see this in Myanmar where the Michelin Dam was suspended. You see it in, in Algeria where it's estimated that companies there have to spend about 9% of their budget on security. Um, because people are so upset with what they're doing. Um, so there is a very real cost to all of this, and I think the business community is becoming more aware. There's hope in that regard. Um, so it is possible, but again, I think we need to see initiative from the bottom up. 
Um, and we can't just rely on governments to, to do the bulk of the work, especially in situations where there is state capture and where that is a problem. Um, this is where you know, non-traditional actors, you know, people, communities, um, businesses, NGOs, whatnot, can play a very big role in demonstrating that the paradigm of profit versus planet is actually not completely accurate either. Um, but in actual fact, we should be thinking more in terms of these two components being mutually reinforcing. And to use the language of self-interest and the language of you know, business to benefit um, the business of saving the environment. Hmm. Ken, you have anything to add? What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're problematizing, you know, I don't, I don't want to take the question away from the questioner. Just a moment, sir, you're, you're next in line. Is, is whether we use the word versus, planet versus profit, or whether, as Pishamon was suggesting, is there scope for another formulation of that uh, dualism, if you like? Hmm. I, I mean, I certainly think within the fisheries, aquaculture, um, forestry worlds, there's definitely, I mean, there's people who are doing doing things the right way. There are communities that are hmm. making money in, in ways that aren't, isn't destroying life for their future generations. It, it's just unfortunately the minority at the moment. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and quite often it takes working with a wide range of people and it takes time and people are not necessarily the most patient of creatures. But there is, I mean, there's some really great stuff going on out there. One of my favorite examples is, I can't remember the name of the farm, but there was this, there's a big um, fish farm off, I think it's off the south coast of Spain. And it, it's an area that was um, drained for agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, I think they were growing rice and running sheep or something there, but um, it got re-flooded and used as, um, a vast area of, of fish farms, but they're not um, they're not doing what other fish farms are around the world where, you know, the seals come in to eat, they shoot the seals. It's now one of the biggest wetland areas for seabirds and they basically make sure that part of their... They know that their production is going to be partly fed, used to feed the seabirds. Mm. And so that's how they manage the area. Mm. So they know we're going to get you know, this much tonnage of fish and we're going to farm things that the, the local birds mm. like as well as the local people. And it's this kind of ecosystem, more, well, more ecosystem-based idea. So, yeah, I just love the idea that they're like, right, well, we know this bit of the fish is for us and this bit of the fish is for the local birds. Mm. And, you know, they, have, they build nesting sites for the birds. They don't chase them away. So there's, there's examples like that where people are thinking kind of more holistically. Good, thanks for that. Uh, question, sir. What is the installed capacity of photovoltaic panels that I'm mentioning in terms of gigabytes, gigawatts, compared to the installed capacity of thermal coal plants? Sorry, I did. I, uh, could you just repeat the question? I didn't quite catch it. There are factories in China that are manufacturing yeah. photovoltaic cells. Yep. And there would be an installed capacity in terms of gigawatts, mm. which can be produced by the panels they are producing every year. They would presumably replace the thermal coal plants. So what is the installed capacity of the panels being manufactured, which have to come and be installed anyway? 
Do we know that or not? So, I, I don't know the technical answer to what you're saying, but, but am I assuming the point of your question is to suggest that the expansion of photo photovoltaic uh, production in China is, is, is much larger than we have otherwise assumed, and that will provide a very ready curb on fossil fuel-based energy. That's, That's the assumption of what you're suggesting? That's right, because every year that much of photovoltaic capacity mm. would be added. Mm. Yeah, so uh, I don't know whether any of the speakers would like to speak to that. I'm, I'm certainly aware, not numerically, but I'm certainly aware of the phenomenon uh, that what you're talking about, which is the uh, really quite astonishing shift, downward shift in um, the cost of solar energy over recent years, which uh, I think Chris alluded to this, it has a potential to potentially provide a major curb to emissions. Um, without putting words in Chris's mouth, his view earlier was that it's perhaps not sufficient in his view to, to override the, the still dominant position of fossil fuels, but Chris, yeah. do you want to elaborate on well, that? I mean, there are, there are some scholars who are quite bullish on the potential for China to sort of reinvent global energy production. So John Matthews at Macquarie University, for instance, has written several books on uh, China as sort of the future of a, 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 glo a global green energy sort of future. Uh, and he's quite strong in that argument. Uh, there are others, uh, Mark Jacobson at Stanford who's written a lot about the potential for a sort of a zero emissions economy based purely on renewables, even for the US. Um, I'm not a, an engineer, so I don't know what the exact numbers are on that. Uh, so yeah, hopefully they're right. My, my problem, I guess, is that if we look at the, the history of energy production in the world and the, the vested interests that have their fingers in the pie of American politics in particular, but also in Australia, Canada, Britain, and pretty well everywhere else, there's a strong lock-in towards fossil fuels will continue. And we're way past the time now where we need dramatic decarbonisation. Just, just quickly, sir, and then we'll move on to someone else here. Would it be too difficult to find out the exact numbers and then base our analysis and thought process on the numbers rather than on intuition. Well, can I I'm all for evidence-based science. I can, as I can, can I assure you of that, yeah. Very quickly, though, because in the Chinese case, it's not just the technological barrier um, that prevents you know, greater progress in this area, but it's also a political one. Yeah. So when you talk about the numbers, that's where it becomes very problematic, because even for scientists working within China, they don't even know the full capacity of what they're working with or what the full capacity may well be. Um, and the same goes for the, the numbers when it comes to pollution and whatnot. The numbers are simply, well, they're there, but we don't know if it's the full story or not. Okay, thank you. Um, I think we had a question up the front. Yep. Yeah, I'm going to grab the bull by the horns and ask you, if we don't succeed in reducing the target um, from four degrees increase heat, um, how long would it be before all life on Earth ceases, and in what way would that happen? Well, that's a very taxing question. Anyone want to take it? Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> there, there is an argument to be made. People like Kevin Anderson and Glenn Peters uh, in the UK and Sweden have made this argument that 
on a business as usual trajectory. We're looking at three to five degrees C this century. Uh, Kevin has gone as far as to argue that that is incompatible with the continuation of sort of uh, economic growth and, and, and modern society as we understand it. So the issue is, we talk about climate adaptation, but it's unlikely that uh, our global civilization could adapt to that three to five degrees C range, particularly in certain parts of the world. So there's estimates around heat stress, for instance, in parts of the Middle East around the Red Sea, where you get greater than 50 degrees C days. What sort of capacity is there for people to be labouring outside and that sort of temperature and, and that sort of thing. So we, we're getting into the, the, the land of supposition about how resilient societies are and there's a whole range of known unknowns and unknown unknowns around issues to do with geopolitical issues, risk, wars, threat, climate migration, disease vectors. It's, it's a big, big question um, to sort of tease out all of those potential implications. Um, yeah, is it, is it likely human civilization could continue in a four-degree sea world? I'm doubtful, but there are probably others who would suggest, well, we're a remarkably resilient species and we're very innovative and we'll come up with some sort of technical solution. And one, of the, one of the things that's probably likely when we, we reach those sorts of um, disaster scenarios is the potential for some sort of uh, rogue geoengineering to occur. Uh, Nation-state or an entrepreneur going ahead and trying to inject sulphur particles into the stratosphere or, or whatever to try and limit the warming. Uh, and people like Naomi Reskes have written books about how that could be a real catastrophe because geoengineering then opens up a whole range of other uh, potentials, uh, what some writers have compared to sort of chemotherapy for a dying planet. So, yeah, that's a bit grim. <laughs> mm. Of course, don't forget it's our non-human others that will be affected by a four-degree world as well whether we use those non-human others for food or to sustain ecosystems in all kinds of ways, disruptions of uh, well, in the fish, in the seafood, in the, in the seas, um, disruption of sort of uh, marine life would be profound, I would imagine. Um, Cattle Pishamon, do you want to add something? Yeah, I mean, it's, there'll be life still on the planet, but mm. what it looks like is anyone's guess. Um, I mean, we've already seen the impacts of climate change on a lot of, of ocean species. We've already seen big shifts in, um, in where different populations are. Um, so, yeah, it's the, the big issues are, you know, which species can adapt the fastest. But it's kind of hard to adapt if half of your food swam the other direction. When you, you want to go north to the, where it's cooler and your food's gone somewhere else or, it, you know, it's your food can't move because it's seagrass and if it's all gone. So, yeah, there's, there's so many factors that's going to be interesting to see. I mean, everyone pretty much agrees it's going to be the, the cockroaches and the jellyfish that we will probably survive. If you like to eat those, good luck. Mm -hmm. or well, no, Don't I feel obliged. Uh, no, no. I, yeah. I mean, I agree with everything. Yeah. Um, and I think I appreciate you raising the point about the non-human others. I mean, because we are seeing ways of extinctions, right? Mm. Um, and I think that just simply underscores the severity of what we're going through. But who knows? We may well grow gills or something. Okay. As an Thanks. adaptive um, measure. Gent in the middle there, yeah. The, that last answer was very... There were some very grim things being said there. I'm an unapologetic optimist, so I'd like to change the tact again, if that's okay. Um, we need optimism. Don't be except apologetic. 
except the, the first um, thing that I would like to say about it is that environment is about um, reality, it's about nature, it's about all the things that have passed. And one of the things that's passed, which is an interesting pattern, is that every human so-called civilization has undergone this same delusion that we are somehow more intelligent than nature and we need to impose our solutions on nature and impose our solutions on the symptoms that we're experiencing. But there are other societies, horticultural societies, indigenous societies that are so-called uncivilized. They're the ones that seem to ride this wave of that meeting their own needs and the needs of the planet. And it's these societies that I believe that we need to learn from. And that's two quite different stories that, that we can look at. We can look at the world through this story that we are the intelligent ones or that we are all connected and part of this intelligent system. And I'd like to get um, the panel's thoughts on that concept of those two stories. Any takers? So some weeks ago, a colleague and I went up to uh, Cairns and Port Douglas. We're studying the political response to the coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef. And we went out on a uh, snorkeling tour out to the Outer Barrier Reef. And the guide was pointing out to us that sea levels had moved significantly between ice ages, last ice age 10, 12,000 years ago. Um, the water level where we were, an hour and a half out from Port Douglas, right out in the continental shelf, that was all land when the sea levels were right down the last ice age. And he made the really profound point that really st struck me was that the indigenous population of Australia had lived through at least three or four of those ice ages, going back 40,000, 50,000 years. And they'd seen the waters go up and down by, um, I guess, 100, 100 metres or so. Uh, and they'd seen, through their civilization and their stories, they'd seen the reef adjust and change over this, these millennia. Uh, and that long span of history is quite daunting when you think about it. And we, as you say, we like to think of ourselves as this technologically advanced civilization. We put a man on the moon and all this sort of stuff. But when we look at the, the long span of history, we're just like a little speck at the end there. And these other civilizations that have been around much longer than us and have lived in harmony with nature um, and part of nature, not to try and get away from that dualism, that, that is a, that's quite a profound insight. And, um, yeah, I just, it put me into some context about this whole thing. Hmm. I absolutely agree with you. I think indigenous knowledge is extremely important to climate change adaptation, but also to environmental protection. I think having said that, the issue, though, is again one of implementation, because even though the UN keeps on talking about indigenous knowledge and the importance of indigenous rights, again, we're just simply not seeing it getting translated at the local level, right? We're not seeing governments really championing this cause in any real way. Um, and again, I'm, I'm generalizing to some degree here, of course, there are initiatives um, in various countries that are promising. Um, and of course, if you look, for instance, at, at in Cambodia, there have been initiatives spearheaded by Buddhist monks, for instance, um, under the kind of the community forest notion that you can actually create very thriving forests on the basis of communities just looking after it, which is a very simple idea. Um, but I think the problem, though, is that, you know, climate change, but also many of the other issues, like, again, cyanide contamination of local rivers because of mining enterprises, um, these are man-made 
like contemporary man-human-made problems, right? Um, and for that reason, indigenous knowledge is adaptive, of course, but the concern is that it may not be able to adapt as quickly as the nature of the problems grow and evolve. Um, and the problem there as well is that indigenous communities are working within a very restrictive framework, right? Um, both in policy, but also in conceptual terms. Um, so if you go and speak to people in Bhutan, for instance, they, they have very clear ideas about the importance of nature, but they still don't know how to reconcile that value system with the boom in hydropower dams across the country or that's being proposed across the country. So I think it's, it's very true that we need to rely more on indigenous knowledge, but we also need to think about how, we, how indigenous knowledge can be adapted and evolved so that it can meet the contemporary nature of these problems that we are facing today. Cap, would you like to add or anything? Only that I, when somebody asked earlier you know, what would, who would be left, I did have an image of, of small pockets of Amazonian Indians kind of going, where'd everyone go? <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Sounds a bit like a loony cartoon to me. Um, question there, uh, lady on the uh, aisle there. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm actually doing an assignment currently that's literally about um, the imperatives of growth why sustainability is what well, I'm arguing that it's inherently incompatible with that. Mm. Um, I'm actually using your book as a reason, so thanks for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and one of the things that I keep coming across is that we have this, like, yes, sustainable development didn't really mean anything anymore because it was kind of captured and taken as um, and spun around where businesses could use it to say, oh, yeah, we're doing something sustainable where really what they were just in doing was increasing their efficiency and then just like with the tuna, actually just fishing more and taking more. Um, and one of the things I was curious about was it, we, we know that if you go below the 3% GDP rate, bad things happen. How can we then be sustainable and still... but try and manage this growth rate to try and reduce it. Like, I don't think that capitalism and um, sustainability can really work together. And so I'm trying to argue that we need to find a way to come to overcome this 3% GDP. Um, but how can we do that in terms of the economy that we currently reside in? Mm. You're too young to be this pessimistic, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's the young who have every right to be pessimistic, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Anyway, I think, Chris, you're the yeah. uh, first cab off the rank for so, that one. So there are some really good writers in this space. So Tim Jackson in the UK, Prosperity Without Growth, is a, is a good place to start. Um, uh, there's the Donut Economy book that Kate Raworth has put out recently. So there are, there are sort of prominent um, non-orthodox economists who are trying to grapple with that exact issue. How do we separate uh, capitalist growth from its material impacts? Can we move towards degrowth? Is that possible? What does that look like? I mean, a lot of this is quite um, uh, sort of um, hypothetical in a sense because, as we all know, capitalist growth is sort of ingrained into pretty well everything. I mean, it would be a, a, a bizarre uh, vision to see the, the treasurer uh, at Budge and I getting up and say, I've got a great idea, let's degrowth the economy, let's, let's grow at minus 4% next year. I mean, it's sort of like antithetical to everything that, that we hold dear. But this, this 
this worship of GDP growth is something that we've really got to tackle because it's measuring a whole lot of economic activity which is actually non-productive. It's, it's, it's nonsensical. And unfortunately, it, that seems to have captured the political imagination. But, but the only response I'd make is there are lots of people, mostly in the UK it seems, who are trying to unpack this idea of what degrowth might look like and how we can actually have a, a good and viable social community without this worship of GDP uh, growth. Hmm. Your Kate Rowless donut economy sort of idea is based on, to some extent on the circular economy idea, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. We have one question at the back. I know there's a, a questioner who's been waiting for a while. Um, on a kind of similar note, my question is, um, what are the economic and political benefits of Australia attempting to become a sustainable um, like kind of nation? And is it possible in the current economic and political climate for Australia to do so? Hmm. Pishamon or Kat, since Chris asked the last question, do either of you want to take first cab off the rank in answering yet another challenging question? Um, from a fisheries perspective, um, I mean, I know we've... Australia's still got some way to go in, in having the best fisheries management, but we've, we do have some really good fisheries management in this country, and it has led to better, more profitable fisheries. Well, at least it's it's better for those people who are operating within the fishery because they're not trying to compete with way, way more boats than there should be, for example. So, you know, when we've set limits on how many people can fish, the people who go out to fish actually can make a decent mm. living. I mean, you compare that to the poor guys in some of the guys in Southeast Asia where they're operating on boats where they're the boat owners need to make a profit to pay back the loan on their boat there's not enough fish in the water so they are told go fish in Indonesian's water go fish on the high seas and then when they're busted they're kind of left to rot in jail so there's you know Australia has made some pretty good progress on managing its fisheries properly. A whole lot of other things we haven't done, like managing our forests and <laughs> farming land and our water use, but, you know... But the implication of that, Cat, if I can ask you, is, um, yes, we produce comparatively more sustainable seafood in Australia that's more regulated through quota systems and other regulatory devices. Um, but when I go into Woolworths, the Australian seafood is a lot more expensive than something from Southeast Asia. Now, I've, I'm privileged enough to be able to make a choice and pay for sustainability, but of course a lot, a lot of my fellow country persons cannot. And I, it seems to me that sort of we might be doing the right thing, but in a, uh, a more freely tradable set of products such as fisheries, um, unless there's again, more leadership from government in terms of trade regimes and may maybe decisions of larger retailers and the like. We're chasing our tails still. Yeah, I mean, that is, a, that is definitely a big issue. I mean, I'm surprised mm. you could even find the Australian seafood because labelling in mm. Australia is terrible. Um, if it's a prawn, it's probably not Australian. But, we've, we, you know, it's that we have some mm. pretty decent... Um, prawn farming operations in, mm. in Australia and they have to compete with mm. countries where they have no labour standards and mm -hmm. they can use whatever chemicals they want. And so, yeah, that's definitely a, an issue. Mm. And also, you know, we're importing two-thirds of our 
our fish and seafood, so we obviously don't produce enough for our appetites. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I mean, I remember when I was a teenager, smoked salmon was something that you had at Christmas, and prawns was a special thing, and now everyone just expects to be able to eat that every day. Mm. And so, you know, we're not eating wild salmon from Canada, we're eating mm. slightly dodgy farm <laughs> salmon from God knows where, or prawns that have been... Yeah. Cooked in chemicals and injected with water, and God knows what else to do with them. I mean, there's 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 a lot of trade-offs with that. Yeah, I think we started this discussion with some uh, with some the introduction of the idea of values, and I think you've sort of uh, meant that well. I mean, I I personally can't get over the fact that people demand mangoes in their supermarkets 12 months of the year. Yeah. That's that's my example. Mangoes are a month before Christmas. You know, so, you so don't need them from Mexico. Bill, the, the, the question about the economic advantage for Australia's mm. sustainable economy, this is a chance for me to be optimistic, so I'm going to mm. seize this one. Because it's the one chance you'll get. It's the one chance I get. It, it really drives me insane, our current political leadership on this around energy, that Australia could be a world leader in renewable energy. I mean, we are the country out at UNSW, the, the people who sort of perfected a lot of innovations around solar PV. We're out at UNSW. Um, that technology then went to China and has been developed. But if you look at the natural resources we've got in Australia, the solar energy that we see coming down pretty well every day, mm. um, and, and, and the potentials we could have there around wind and solar, we could export to the world a lot of that technological know-how. If we had a government that drove industry policy in the right directions, we used to do industry policy in mm. this country in the 80s. Mm. We don't do it anymore. We don't have governments who sort of mm. map out a plan for where we want to be and where we want to go. We just throw up our hands and go, well, we're just going to burn coal and good things will happen. So it strikes me that there's a complete abrogation by government of leadership in the energy space and, the fu and, and seizing a future around renewable energy that we could have. Okay. I'm conscious we've only got a couple of minutes left. Uh, Natalie, you had someone who... One more question. Maybe... Maybe the uh, lady to your uh, left just there. I uh, apologise for those people with their hands in the air. We've run out of time, unfortunately. Okay, cool. So just to finish off, um, I think just coming back to the individual is, um, is a pretty uh, prevalent sort of thing because within our energies and the things that our government supports, um, I think a lot of us can feel quite powerless with just our own individual voices. But if you're coming back to just us as well, like the amount of waste... Um, and the amount of, of choice we have, I mean, the, the privilege that we have for what we can consume. But the amount of waste that equivalents to um, has really, like, has really sort of, um, what's it called? It's really highlighted for me just how much, just as one human being on Earth, you know, how much waste we go through per day, right? And then you multiply that by how many days we've lived on this Earth. And it's just, like, it's just completely outstanding. Um, so... My friends and I here, we've been a part of someone um, called the Plastic Free Mermaid, for example. She's a legend, if you get a chance to sort of um, to see what she's about. But uh, highlighting things like being plastic free or um, going vegan, for example, is that something that you think an individual can do to, to lessen their impact on Earth? And also just the fact like we're in a concrete jungle, right? But if you throw any of us into the actual jungle, are we going to be able to survive in what sustains us? So is the answer maybe just going back to basics, back to nature, back to the environment and learning what she's there to teach, you know, sustaining, cultivating and, and not putting bloody plastic into it? 
All right. I think that's I think that's a lovely question to finish on. I'll just ask each of the panelists for a very brief response, but uh, it's it's a lovely way to finish. Do okay. do we have individual power? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Look, the, the the sort of the focus on green consumption and reducing plastic waste and other sorts of waste, I think, is very noble, and we should be doing more of it. What worries me a little bit is that there's a lot of waste we produce which is not tangible and visible, and I'm thinking particularly of carbon emissions. So I'm as guilty probably more than most people of flying. I mean, one of the th if you want to talk about individual action, one of the things you could do, it's a couple of things you could do to reduce your impact on the global environment would be not to fly and not to eat meat probably. Um, but more generally than that, if we're really going to deal with these issues, and I think the climate crisis is the big one there, um, it relates to biodiversity decline, it relates to ocean acidification. We've got to dramatically reduce the carbon emissions as a global society. And as I said earlier, that really requires systemic change at a governmental level. And so individually, the leverage there is to take political action to try and drive decisions at a government level that will force decarbonisation. Thanks, Chris. Pishamon? In an ideal world, yes. But we don't live in an ideal world. But I would still say that, yes, we each have individual power. I look at people in other parts of the world who are faced with repressive regimes, and they fought against those regimes, against the odds, in order to stake their claim on their, in their foreign environment. So I think, yes, we do have individual power. Um, but I also want to challenge you and your friends to think in terms of global citizenship as well. Don't think just in terms of what you can do to change. Australia's environment or political climate, think also in terms of what you can do to change the regional environment, the international environment, because that's where we need a lot of action. And that's where you, your individual power can magnify um, and result in even you know, a greater cascade of changes across the board. Thank you. And Kat? Um, I, I certainly um, like the kind of empowerment that I get mm. when I take action in my own life. Um, and I think if you're not taking action in your own life, then you have no integrity. Mm. Um, it's very hard to go and tell somebody else to change if you're not even able to make the basic changes in your own life. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's definitely a part for me, but I also, it has to be coupled with mm. bigger action, definitely. Um, being an activist, which, is, which I am, um, and you know, writing letters to government and going to events like this where we're discussing stuff, not just kind of doing your own little thing in your own little backyard. But I, I totally see that it's, it's an empowering thing to be taking individual action, but as long as you are then driving that, that, that further forward. Um, you know, it, it's all very well if we all stop buying plastic bags and using plastic straws and stuff, but there are a heck of a lot of big companies out there producing a huge amount of waste which is not related to our own personal individual use that has to be addressed. So we have to go to those companies and make them take action as well. All right. So on that note, at 7.30, firstly, I'd like to thank uh, Sydney Southeast Asian Centre and Sydney Ideas for their support in this event. Secondly, most important, I'd like to thank all of you. There's a packed room and that's fantastic on a night like tonight. So thank you very much for attending. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to sort of thank our three panellists, Chris, Pis Chris Pishamon and Nat, and Nat, Cat, <laughs> I should say, for um, their, uh, their contributions tonight. And uh, I hope 
I hope this brief 90-minute discussion we've had tonight has prompted some thoughts. Go out, talk about it with your friends, with your family. I, someone once asked me in a media event, what was the best solution to the environmental crisis? And I said, talk. Keep the conversation going. Even if it gets nowhere, if, it's, if we're talking about it, it's, if it's in our, the front of our minds, um, then we're collectivising a problem. We're, we're all contributing to uh, the thinking through of possible resolutions to that problem. So thank you very much for coming tonight. Hope to see you at future events. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.